Welcome to Pace in Space, Episode 2. Today we'll be talking about the all-star events happening this weekend, giving our top 10 rookie midterm reports, and discussing our mid-season award winners. Hope you guys all enjoy. EJ, would you like to start us off with some trivia? Yeah, of course. So what I got is, let's see if you guys can get all the scoring leaders from 1980 to 1990. I think it'll be kind of hard, but like... Okay, so like for 10, that's 10 scoring champions. 10 scoring champions. There's some repeats, so it's not 10 players. Well, I know Jordan has to be in there. Yeah, Jordan got everything from 86 to 90, so that leaves the first couple of years, which will be, I think, pretty hard. Bird King. Oh, uh, yeah, that's one of them. Okay, so which years do we have so far that are knocked off? We got 80, 81, 81, 82, 82, 83, 83, 84, and 85, 86. So which ones, <laughs> which ones do you have left? I just said. No, I asked, I was asking which ones did we like already get? Oh, which you got 84, 85, and then 86 to 90 is all Jordan. Okay. Um, George Gervin from 80 to 81. I, he actually got 81, 82. Okay. And then here, I think I know this one. Was it, uh, one of the players on the Denver Nuggets by any chance? Yeah, he was. Was it Alex English? Yeah, it was Alex English. What, what else are we missing? You got someone who had it in 80, 81 and 83, 84, and you need 85, 86. 80, 81. Adrian Dantley. Yep. Hey, Jam. What year was that? 80, 81 and 83, 84. Now you just need 85, 86. I think you guys should have gotten this one already. Um, Dominic Wilkins. Yes, sir. Um, All right. Well, that's the trivia for today. Okay. Um, let's just talk about a little recap of this weekend's All Star events and. Um, just recently, actually, a couple hours ago, we learned that um, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid were in contact with someone who tested positive for COVID, so they will not be playing in today's All-Star game. And um, we learned that Zion Williamson will actually be replacing Joel Embiid as a starter, making him one of the youngest starters in NBA history. So what are your guys' thoughts on that? Um, and yeah. Um, I saw a tweet from uh, Bobby Portis, I believe, a couple hours ago. It's like, to just announce the rosters and just let it be and not have that game, which I kind of agree with because, like, all the players missing out, like, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, those are two big names, two big public figures, and it's going to suck not seeing them play. And I'm not sure if it was really worth having an all-star game. So we'll see how it goes. I have no opinion on it one way or the other. It's disappointing, but that's how this year is going to go. So uh, just – Whatever. I know there are guys who didn't really want the All-Star game to even happen in the first place. I think De'Aaron Fox was like one of the first guys to come out about that. Um, and, you know, it was it's unexpected, but you got it's something you got to deal with, at least for this year. So that's it's, it is what it is. Oh, um, yeah, this is definitely disheartening. I wanted to see Simmons and his uh, fellow clutch mate, LeBron, uh, tearing it up in the All-Star game as well as Embiid and um, what he's able to do in crunch time of the all-star game when it gets really interesting. And then also um, for the overall grand scheme of, grand scheme of things, uh, this is after, this is definitely a big deal for the Sixers because for the next seven days, 
um, their whole entire team is probably going to have to go through some form of contact tracing protocol. And it could result in at least two to three games being uh, missed or postponed. That's all I got to say. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's good. For, I think it's a good thing that uh, Zion actually gets the opportunity to start. I think it's just good for his legacy. But yeah, ultimately, yeah, I agree with all you guys, what you guys were saying. Um, so in terms of the all-star events coming up this weekend, so what are your guys' predictions on uh, we could start off with um, the three-point contest. Who do you guys think have winning the three-point contest? I don't think it will be Steph. I, I want to say Loki Levine, maybe Jalen Brown. Booker. Uh, I'm going to go with Booker as well. I mean, Booker and Steph, those are really the two ones for me. Just when those guys heat up, it they just take you to a whole other level when it comes to not being able to miss. So, yeah, Levy, uh, Booker or Steph, those are my two picks. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Steph. You, you really can't go wrong with that answer, the greatest shooter of all time. So I think we can leave it off of that. Um, and then next we have the dunk contest, who I know uh, Danny's excited about because his next player, Obi Toppin, is going to be participating this year. So thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, Cassius Stanley's going to win. Agreed. Cassius Stanley. I think it'll be Stanley, but I think the IMG boy, Bernie, will second. Hoppin and uh yeah, Anthony Simons. Yeah. Anthony Simons. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I think he'll come in second. But yeah, yeah. I think Cash Stanley definitely won in that. I don't I haven't really seen like Anthony Simons. I don't know if Anthony Simons can really get up like that. Maybe maybe he I just can. haven't watched I, enough. I've seen that. I've seen his high school days. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So then I definitely don't know about like that. Cash Stanley. It, it's Cash Stanley's yeah, I just, I think based on what we've seen from those high school tapes, I think it's Cash Stanley's to lose as well. Um, I'm actually really interested in seeing what Obi Toppin's going to be bringing to the table because with the bigger dunkers, they're typically more known as in-game type of dunkers. So I'll be interested to see what a 6'9 guy will be able to bring to an all-star dunk contest type of setting. Yeah, and then uh, moving forward, we have the Skills Challenge, who I know was just announced that Luca and Chris Paul were awarded the buys because they had either the most all-star votes or were, were an all-star starter. So based on that list, who do you guys have winning that? Um, I'm, I'm calling for an upset. I think Julius Randle. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's, Julius Randle's not winning it. Um, it's probably going to be Chris Paul. I think he's got the most well-rounded skill set for all the things they have to do. I mean, those bigger guys, they take a lot of uh, – I think like a big disadvantage, I guess, when you're uh, in the dribbling aspect of it and you can't hit that first pass, you're kind of screwed. And uh, I, I just think Chris Paul will kind of work his way through it. So, and some of the bigger guys like Randall Vucevic might struggle uh, on that, the dribbling and the, the passing, even if they can hit the three well. So I'd go with Chris Paul. Um, I think I'll be going with the young superstar, Luka Doncic, and he's just a wizard with the ball. Obviously, CP is also a great choice. But then uh, the guy I'll be actually rooting for is <laughs> probably the most random selection of the bunch, Robert Covington. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think it's crazy that they have, like, a guy that's generally known for his defense and just being a 3 and D guy, like, participating in the skills challenge. So I'm just looking forward to seeing what he's able to bring. 
yeah, definitely the odd man out. So it'll be interesting to see what Covington does. Um, anyways, I think that's good for uh, the recap. I We should go ahead and hop into our topics for today. So for those of you who are listening, we are going to be giving out rookie midterms and we are also going to be giving out midseason awards. So for the rookie midterms, we are going to be looking at the rookie ladder um, that NBA.com updates weekly. And this week's rookie ladder was from one to 10, ranking who's going to, who are the best rookies and who was performing the best. So we're just going to do it like from 10 to one and then just talk about every rookie. Um, up first, we have. Well, I'll say that um, I like the pick for the Cavs because he can come in. He's probably their best defender right now and probably their second or third best passer. He's a. Uh, he started out the season pretty well, I remember. Maybe it was preseason with, like, some game winners and stuff, but it's definitely been a learning curve for him. But I still think that he can be a solid starter to maybe even a borderline high-level starter. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of Okoro's game. I was a big fan of the draft process. And although his scoring numbers are probably among, like, the lowest in the league when you're talking about permanent scoring efficiency, um, I think – He's bringing much-needed defense to the Cavaliers roster. Um, and also his three-point shooting has increased um, as the season has gone along, which is uh, definitely a, a positive sign. And then the playmaking has been as good as advertised, especially when you consider the fact that the spacing on that team has been pretty limited when they're rolling out uh, two, sometimes even three centers at once. So, yeah, I'm definitely excited for his future. Um, well, I believe I had Isaac Okoro ranked uh, the highest out of us four when we made our 2020 NBA draft prospects list. I think I had him as my fourth ranked player. Um, and obviously a selection like that is not always going to be an immediate impact player, especially because he's drafted largely based off of his high ceiling. Um, I do think that he's played pretty well throughout this first half of the season, I still think there's a lot of room to grow. I think the reason they drafted him is because it's pretty rare that you can get uh, the high upside wing who can play very good defense, have a lot of energy throughout the game, and is fluid with the ball and can create his own shot. So a lot of parts of his game still need to be polished, but he's got the potential and he's shown in flashes uh, so far this year that he could be a really good player in the future. Yeah, I really like uh, what I'm seeing from Isaac Okoro. I know he had some uh, flashes like earlier in the season where he had that game winner, I believe. I don't remember who, exactly who it was, but it was like a like a kind of like a free play, free play, I guess. And he just had like a wide open layup for transition. So that was a pretty cool highlight to see from such a young player. Um, in terms of the consistency, like efficiency, it's obviously going to be a work in progress. Like typically rookies just don't come out the gate shooting at high levels so like he's currently shooting 41 from the field and 30 from three um that that's like that's pretty normal for a guy at his um level and where he was drafted so I'm not too concerned about that like you guys have mentioned so yeah I'm just very excited for Okoro's um career and to see where it goes but uh moving along in this list we have um Desmond Bain from the Memphis Grizzlies um he played a pretty decent role when John Morant uh, went down with that ankle sprain. And he's been getting some playing time as of late, 
but and he's in the month of February, he's averaged 11 points per game and 24 minutes per game. So definitely some promise there. What do you guys think about that? Well, um, obviously, like he's not he was never drafted uh, to be like a starter, <clears throat> especially early in his career. He was drafted more as like a backup point guard type role, um, kind of a pesky guy who can score on offense, be like uh, a, a pest on defense. But he's had to kind of start because of the John Moran injury, or he's had to play more minutes because of the John Moran injury. So I think he's filled in admirably. I, I don't know necessarily what I expect of him in the future, but I definitely think he has done a good job for where he was drafted and what was expected of him. And hopefully he continues uh, to play well, even though John Moran's back and they can, uh, you know, push each other and get each other better throughout their careers. Well, um, Bain is a fellow Indiana boy, so kind of kudos to him there. But I agree with Schechter. I didn't really expect that much out of him coming out of the draft. I just hoped he could be like, you know, solid three-point shooter, which he is shooting about 44% from three. Playing, I guess, exactly how I kind of expected him from him. So that's all I got to say about Desmond. I wasn't that high on him coming out of college anyway, so. Um, Desmond Bain, he is a draft Twitter darling during the draft process. And I personally wasn't as high on him. I knew he could be a capable um, bench scorer in the league. And that's what he's proven to be so far. What his ceiling is, we're still not sure about yet. But what I do know is that shooting comes at a premium in the NBA. And he's currently averaging um, nearly two three-point makes per game on over 44% from the three-point line. And he's also shooting about 48% from the field. So I think he's been able to add some much needed scoring to a very limited Grizzlies injured and uh, limited Grizzlies roster during his rookie season, which is uh, a very positive sign. Yeah, I agree um, all around. I think he's shown promise to hold a backup position in this league and be a serviceable backup for a long time. Uh, we'll see where his career tra trajectory goes, but as of now, I think he's had an excellent start to his young NBA career, and especially for being the 30th overall pick. Um, he's definitely exceeded expectations, and yeah, so definitely the, the future is bright for this kid. Um, moving forward at number eight on the rookie ladder, we have Patrick Williams from the Chicago Bulls. Um, this guy is was a guy who wasn't completely sought out after uh, pre-draft. He wasn't uh, high on many people's draft rankings, but um, he's turned out to be an excellent player. And I'd like to give a shout out to JM, who um, was very high on Patrick Williams early on before a lot of people were. So um, shout out to him. And he's just been very solid for the Bulls all year. So once again, what are you guys' thoughts on how Patrick Williams is doing? I know uh, some people in this pod were uh, very high and excited on him. I was hesitant, but still a believer, I would say. But he's definitely uh, far exceeded my personal expectations for him. He's shooting 40% from three about on like two or three attempts per game. So that's very nice and unexpected. Passing has been just what Jam was telling us the entire draft process. He needs a very switchable defender. He's become more laterally agile since his day the first day, I would say. And um, I think he deserves more than the 25-ish minutes per game he's getting on the Bulls. So 
uh, Patrick Williams, this is my guy. I actually, um, since the spring, I'd like to say probably even uh, January of 2020, he was the number one player on my draft board. And even looking back on it now, I'd probably still have him as a number one just because of his long-term ceiling of potential. Yeah, honestly, Patrick Williams, he's even better than I thought he would be as a rookie. I thought they need to bring him along more slowly than they have and like um, maybe give him a, a bench role or maybe even uh, put him in the G League just so he can have like a, a court to himself and try to develop his skills that way. But he's actually fit in very nicely as a serviceable starter for that team and one of the best um, rookies in the league. Also, uh, he's shooting about 45% on corner threes and he's also shooting 34% on above the break threes. So I'd say those are two pretty intriguing statistics. Um, it's kind of like how Kawhi was brought up in San Antonio where they just had him focus on being a very complimentary piece on offense and, and focusing on defense and locking down the opposing team's uh, top defense, top offensive weapon. And I think he's done a great job with that, guarding some of the best uh, big forwards in the league, like uh, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis Antetokounmpo. They've definitely gotten their numbers on him, but the fact that he has the body, the frame, and the mindset to make them work, I think it's going to prove uh, fruitful by the end of his career and with his career trajectory. So going based off of our consensus draft rankings, uh, JM had him as his number one player. I had him at five. Sagar had him at six. And EJ had him all the way down at 11. So uh, I, you could call myself or call Sagar and I like average believers in him relative to the, to the group. Um, but he's definitely impressed me thus far into the season. He has done a lot more as a playmaker than what I expected. I've seen a lot of flashes of, of great core vision and passing ability from him that I didn't really expect to see this, or this early in his career and that I didn't really see at Florida State when he was playing last year. And he looks a lot more fluid as a defender as well than what I saw at Florida State. Um, although he was very, very impressive at Florida State that he was uh, you know, half-court, full-court pressing at 6'8", 230-something pounds probably. Um, and obviously his shooting is translated uh, very well. And I, his shooting translated a lot quicker than I expected to. So he's kind of, as a developmental player, he's you know probably a year or two ahead of where I expected him to be in his development. And I would not be surprised if he, if he blossoms into a, a star in the next you know, year or two. Yeah, um, adding on to what Danny was talking about in terms of the playmaking, I completely agree. Like that is... Um, that's definitely one area in his game, which has exceeded like not my expectations, but just, I feel like the general public's expectations, like, although he's not averaging any like crazy assist numbers, he's only averaging an assist per game. Um, when you watch him play, he just seems very calm, collected, and he knows where, when to make the right pass, when to drive, uh, when to shoot all that. I mean, yes, he could probably get more aggressive with his shooting, but that will come in time. Um, but I'm really loving what I'm seeing from his playmaking. Also, um, I've been hearing a lot of like Kawhi comparisons. I don't know if he could ever get to that level of greatness because obviously Kawhi is going to be, or if not already, one of the greatest players to ever play the game of basketball. But I do see the similarities between a young Patrick Williams and a young Kawhi and in terms of just like their build, um, the play style, 
the ability to get to the mid-range, which Patrick Williams has shown, although he hasn't hit it consistently, but he's shown his willingness to take those types of shots um, in that 15 to 18-foot range where Kawhi obviously makes his money around that range. And just in terms of the efficiency, if you look at like a rookie Kawhi versus a rookie Patrick Williams, you see their numbers are like eerily, eerily similar. I mean, Patrick Williams is averaging a couple more points per game, but other than that, um, their numbers are damn near identical. Um, so I just think that Patrick Williams has that ability to expand his offensive repertoire one day and also be one a great perimeter defender in this league. Now, will we ever get to the level of Kawhi? That's still going to be a question we have to, to see answered, but I still think he can get to a high-level player and potentially an all-star level player for sure. We can uh, move on to the next guy on the list. We have this is one of my favorites, uh, favorite players coming to the draft, James Wiseman of the Golden State Warriors. Um, Wiseman has been injured as of late, but although he's come back recently, but he's been averaging 12, 6, and a, a block a game. So your thoughts on James Wiseman? Wiseman's a guy that I've been having my eyes on since he was about probably a junior in high school. Tremendous physical uh, skills and abilities. Bro is 7'1", like 7'6", wingspan, 35-plus vert, extremely athletic. So he's definitely has the, you know, superstar big potential. But as of late, he's had his struggles as any rookie would on defense and drop coverage, you know, being a little late on rotations, over-eager to block shots and getting fouls. He's easily tricked into pump fakes, but it's all expected of rookies. Players like Jaron Jackson Jr. had the same problem when they were younger. Um, he's shooting 37% from three on one attempt per game. So that's intriguing to see if he can increase that percentage and the attempts at an efficient rate. But um, his touch around the basket can be suspect sometimes. Like he has some egregious misses on like hook shots and like touch shots down there. But his footwork is good and getting better, I would say. But all, all in all, he just needs to keep growing and keep progressing. I think a good place for him to be in the Warriors with Draymond coaching him. You always see those highlights in the room talking to him. So I think it's a good spot for him now. And I think he can continue to grow, become maybe an all-star one day. Um, Weissman, he's definitely a, a big time project for the Warriors. He's a guy that's probably about seven foot one and over 250 pounds, but with uni unicorn skills that are very appealing. The issue with Weissman so far is just the fact that he hasn't been, played basketball in such a long time. I believe he only played three games in college. And then obviously um, with no preseason or summer league or anything like that, like it was just a much bigger transition for him um, going to the NBA than probably some of the other one and done guys. But I think that uh, the flashes have definitely been there and they've been intriguing enough to the point where it's like they really feel, the Warriors really feel that they have something legitimate on their hands. I'd say that his issues have just been uh, typical issues uh, that you would normally see from rookie big men. Uh, for instance, he's in the 12th percentile in the league when it comes to foul rate. So basically uh, he's following it <laughs> like astronomically high uh, levels. And it's kind of been a struggle for him to stay on the floor because of that. And then also he's only in the 50th percentile when it comes to grabbing uh, defensive rebounds off uh, opponent misses. And I thought that was probably his biggest strength coming uh, into the draft was his ability to rebound offensively and defensively. But 
I kind of think his feel for the game has left him out of position on too many possessions throughout the Warriors games. And then also his foul drawing, he's only drawing about 4.7, or he's only taking about 4.7 free throw attempts per 36 minutes. But I think that if he's able to reach his peak, then that number won't even be half of what it is uh, or half of what it could be down the road. Well, when I'm looking at Wiseman, um, obviously everything you guys talked about, you know, fouls uh, as what he's very raw as a player, still struggles, you know, jumping at uh, pump fakes, et cetera, stuff that, you know, you'll grow out of as a rookie. Um, and one thing that led him to be drafted so highly was that ability, other expected ability that he could eventually develop into a, a guy who can, you know, shoot and extend all the way out to the three point line. And um, looking at some of the numbers, like you said, he's shooting 37% from three his rookie year. And there's some weird uh, numbers when you're when you're looking at his splits, because he's only she's shooting less than 40% from inside from three to 10 feet. And he's shooting an abysmal 21% from 10 to 16 feet. But his numbers actually get better as he gets farther outside. Um, and that has to do with him taking more jumpers from that area. And then if you're looking at uh, his how, how closely he's being defended, his numbers actually get worse and worse the more wide open he is. So he's shooting 57% um, when a defender's within two feet of him, 54% when a defender's between two and four feet, only 51% when it's between four and six. And he's only shooting, uh, oh, those are all the effective field goal percentages too. And he's only shooting 43.8% on six plus feet, like wide open shots. And all of the field goal percentage numbers are even lower than that. So um, it's a little bit concerning that uh, he's missing like progressively more open shots, but that's something that, you know, as he, you know, plays more years in the league, he'll, he'll develop uh, more consistency with his jump shot. So if he can actually, you know, become a 30, like a legitimate 37% plus three point shooter throughout his career, and he can continue to uh, make the contested shots and improve his percentage on the more or on the open shots, which obviously uh, it's expected that he will. I definitely think he could be a scary offensive threat in the league. What I've seen from Wiseman this year is what really like excites me from his game is his ability to rim run, especially in transition. Um, if he has a guy, obviously he has Steph Curry who can always, who's always a threat anywhere on the court. So if he has a guy who can push it in transition and he just runs, he can get a lot of easy baskets off of that. I mean, I, I remember one play in particular, he, uh, they were playing the Tim Minnesota Timberwolves and Draymond caught it off the glass and Wiseman was running full speed down the middle of the court and Draymond hit him on a perfect pass and Wiseman finished it with a slam. So, the, I mean, those kind of things, especially in today's NBA, where it's a lot more fast paced and teams love to get up and down the court can be really beneficial to any team. And also uh, in the half court setting, I really like him as a, a lob threat, especially because Obviously, his his reach is just incredible. I don't know exactly what the measurements are, but I know he has such a a nice reach. Um, he's quick. He's mobile. Um, you can just throw it up there, and he'll go get it. And in terms of his offensive repertoire, um, I think it'll come with time. He's shown flashes of putting the ball on the deck and getting to his spots, like like he's shown some flashes of his mid ranges and things of that nature. Um, the three point percentage. I think he can be a solid shooter as a big. However, I don't think 30%, 37% is indicative of how well he's shooting this year because he's only shot like 27 threes and he, he kind of got off to like a, a hot start 
like in the first five games of the season. So that kind of like boosted his three-point percentage. I'm sure if you look at the numbers now, like his three-point percentage has significantly decreased since then. Um, so I think over time, he yes, he will improve his three-point shot, but we'll have to see how good that ends up getting. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm super excited for Wiseman. I think he has, like EJ said, he has a potential to become an all-star level talent. Um, I think he's a better prospect than what DeAndre Aiden was coming in. And DeAndre Aiden's a 20 and 10 guy and a potential all-star player in the next two, four or five years, however long it might be. So future's great for Wiseman. Um, so moving on to number six, we have Jashan Tate from the Houston Rockets. He's currently averaging 10, five and two assists per game. And he's just producing, although the Rockets are losing, he's been producing at somewhat of a solid level. First off, bro is old as hell, bro. Cause he, I'm Ohio State fan. He was at Ohio State like way back. He's been gone from there for like at least like three, four years now. He's got to be like 24, 25. So. I was shocked when he made his debut this year. I thought he was like out of the league playing in Israel or something. I don't know. But um, he's actually been pretty good for them as like an energy guy. I'm looking at his stats right now and he's averaging nine points per game. But like, I think the last two weeks, he's been averaging like 12, 13 because he's on my fantasy team. I picked him up from waivers and he hits rebounds and boards basically for them. He's kind of like a more inside centered, small forward, power forward. So I don't, I don't really watch the Rockets that much, honestly. So I don't know that much about him make a solid judgment, but his stats are decent, 30% three on two attempts per game, so not the best. But from what I've heard, he's more of a blue guy, defense and inside. Um, yeah, Jason Tate, 25-year-old rookie out of Ohio State, and just last season he was actually in the NBL in Australia with LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton. I'm a huge fan of this guy. I think he's a dog. I think um, his energy is infectious. Uh, when it comes to the rest of the Houston Rockets roster. His defense has been a huge plus for them. Um, obviously, you'd like to see his three-point numbers go up a little bit so he could be a threat from the corners at the like bare minimum, but he's very aggressive from, I, from what I've seen. He's been very aggressive attacking the paint when need be, whether it be off the dribble or even um, being useful as a cutter, which I think is essential if you're going to be a role player in the league and you can't shoot you have to be able to cut and move without the ball and be useful uh, I think that's also indicative when you look at his two-point percentage um, he's shooting about 62 percent um, from the two-point area which is obviously a huge plus for him uh, being able to be a consistent finisher for the Rockets and then also the passing passing has been a, a huge plus for their offense when he's able to get into the driving lanes and make a simple read because you know a lot of Wings in the league, especially the defensive-minded ones, when they get the ball and there's not an immediate driving lane, then they're not really useful after that. But I think he's able to, you know, he's kind of a smaller guy. He's only about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he's able to get into those, like, tight areas and make a solid play out of it when they need him to. So I'm a huge fan of him. I hope I hope his shooting numbers go up so then he can have a greater value in the league. So Jason Tate, despite being undersized, has kind of played uh, the three through five role for uh, Houston and he kind of, I mean, this is obviously a post Harden era in Houston. So I don't really know where they really want to go in terms of small ball versus having like a more traditional size, traditionally sized center. 
but he fits the small ball role pretty well for them. And uh, in the lineups that he's been playing and his most played in lineup in terms of minutes per game is as like the, is as a four or five. He's essentially the center in these lineups. Um, and most of like, uh, he's one of those guys where all of his shots are either inside the paint or from spotting up from three. And he, if he fits the role that Houston wants to play and he's going to play with energy, that's, that's a, good uh addition to the team and i know that he's not like super skilled or anything but if he's gonna provide a role that houston wants uh i'm sure that he'll find a spot in the nba especially if houston continues playing with a, a you know a small ball center 100 percent, guys 100 percent. um moving forward on this list at number five we have a prospect i really liked coming in uh sadiq bay from the detroit pistons he's uh currently averaging 10 a game four rebounds and one assist and he's shooting uh very well from the three-point range um he's a guy that i know you and jam were very high on i i would say i was high on him but i was about average on him he's been shooting tremendously well from three 40 percent on the year on 5.5 attempts and uh 46 percent in the last three weeks so he's probably exactly what i expected a three and d guy doesn't bring much playmaking wise but um he really adds some spacing that Detroit desperately needs and should be a key piece for them in the post Griffin era. Um, Sadiq Bey, this is a guy who, honestly, for most of the draft process, I was not very high on. I thought he was a bit overrated, but it wasn't until the last week or two leading up to the draft where I kind of realized his potential and what he could um, bring value to uh, like for an NBA franchise. He's a big guy about six, seven, six, eight, and his shooting has been as good as advertised. And it comes at a premium in this league, as I said before. And then his defense, his defensive versatility is what really impresses me. I don't view him necessarily as a stopper, um, but I do think that he has a lot of value when you look at what he can contribute in a team setting um, and just his switchability onto different um, roles and sizes on the court. And then, yeah, I think the pairing between he and Jeremy Jackson, it's definitely something that's very intriguing. There's a lot of shooting and it's a lot of defensive versatility. I think uh, Sadiq Bay is probably the better perimeter defender than uh, Jeremy Grant, while Jeremy Grant's probably uh, the superior weak side rim protector, as, you'd, uh, as you would say. So, yeah, I'm just interested to see what those two guys can bring to the Detroit Pistons franchise, which clearly needs some juice right now. So yeah, I'm excited about those two. Well, uh, you know, in this era, this is really uh, get you get stars, then you get three and D role players, and I really feel that he fits that three and D role player build um, to a T. He's shooting. Uh, I mean, obviously, he was a good shooter in college, but nobody expected him to come out and shoot almost forty. He's shooting thirty nine point three percent right now from three, and he's uh, shooting. 44.4% on shots, 16 feet to the three-point line. So like those uh, deep mid-range shots. And I mean, he's pretty much filled the exact role that they drafted him to, to, you know, fit. And if you can shoot efficiently in the NBA and not get blown by in defense every possession, then you're going to have a spot um, as a role player and you're going to get minutes. And as a rookie, he's, he's done that. So if you can improve on his game even more, uh, we could end up seeing him as a, as a starter on, on a good team especially if he gets paired with uh, people who can really utilize his three-point shooting ability with, uh, if he gets paired with a really good playmaker, someone who, you know, can really 
create shots for his teammates by attacking the basket. So I, I do expect him to have a pretty long and successful career. Yeah, I think uh, Sadiq Bey has been just sensational this entire season. He's on pace to hit um, over 153s. He's already got 72, just over halfway through the season. Uh, his free throw percentage is 85%. It's at very elite level. Um, I, I think we've, as we've seen in the NBA in the last, I don't know, 10, five to 10 years, we've seen that shooting is an absolute premium in today's league. And we've seen guys like David Bertans just this offseason and Joe Harris get paid the big bucks because of their ability to shoot the three-pointer at such a high up. So the fact that um, Bay is already shooting 40% from deep on five attempts shows me that he has a he has the uh, chance to be one of the highest paid players in terms of the role that he plays because I think he's just scratching the surface in terms of his three-point shooting. I think he'll continue to get better. Um, he'll increase his attempts and his percentage will get better along with that. So I think Sadiq Bey is in for a very long career if he stays healthy. And I think he's in for a lot of, lot of money. So, yep. Um, okay, moving forward, we have at number four, we have the number one overall pick of this year's draft, Anthony Edwards. Um, he's currently averaging 15, four, and three a game. Um, Edwards was someone I was extremely high on the entire process. He was basically an A or one B for me the entire time. And he's been maddeningly inefficient and kind of frustrating as a fan of his because one night he'll do his thing efficiently and the next he'll be like two for 12 and like not get to the line. And it's just, he's written mad. Really, rookie inconsistency that's really hurt in his um his spot in the rookie ladder. But he's had his flashes as a defender, I would say. Like, and he had a nice sequence on Luka Doncic's one game, and he shot creation has translated still inefficiently, but it's there. And um, is he's only averaging two free throw attempts per game, which is concerning. Kind of, he's still kind of settling like he did at Georgia for like tough jumpers and like long twos and setback threes, which are fine, but he's not making those efficiently either, I would say. And he's shooting only about 50% around the rim, which is for a guy of his physical dominance, I would like a little more out of that, I would say. And there have been some nice passes from him, but at Georgia, they're few and far in between, I would say. He's still kind of sort of a black hole in offense. So he has a long ways to go, I'd say, but, um, Minnesota isn't the best place for him, but hopefully he can continue to improve and make that jump to be an all-star caliber player, all-NBA player. I think he can be. EJ, not to cut you off, but where uh, where do you want his efficiency to be at? Like, I know he's shooting currently shooting thirty-seven from the field right now. So, yeah, like, that's, where where do you want it? I guess that's what I'm asking. He's shooting. He's shooting. I'm looking right now, forty-two percent on two-point shots. Like, come on, like you got to shoot at least fifty. I feel like on twos, because he's mostly shooting shots at the rim and like long too so at least get that up to 50 i would say and the three-point percentage six attempts 30 percent like that's that's like some Giannis stuff right there like you got to do better bro so hopefully like at least 35 on that many attempts i would say but i will give him credit he takes difficult threes which is good if he makes them but he's not so he just needs to do the shot selection a little bit more and i feel like the efficiency can go up 
Um, Edwards, I believe I was probably the lowest on him out of everyone on this podcast going into the NBA draft. I believe I had him at number four overall on my draft board. And that's not to slide him in any uh, way. I think he's a tremendous talent with a lot of upside. But yeah, like EJ was saying, his inefficiency has uh, been well documented this year. He's probably averaging about uh, one point per shot, which is well below league average. And yeah, I just think that um, what's going to, like what his career will come down to will just be the coaching staff in Minnesota. And that's an organization, quite honestly, that hasn't had a lot of accountability. That's something that Jimmy Butler uh, spoke uh, heavily about. It's just that there's lack of accountability when it comes to the coaching staff and the players there. And I think that with the new coach that they have from Toronto, I think if he's able to bring the kind of uh, accountability necessary to develop young talent, then I think that could be very beneficial for his career. It's kind of crazy because going into the draft, he was documented as this big time scoring talent, but um, there are a lot of questions about his playmaking and his defense, but quite honestly, his defense and his playmaking have probably been the things I've been highest on (laughs) as a rookie so far. And I think that the scoring, like that's going to be the big swing for him because obviously he'll be able to give you points in bunches, but it's like, uh, will he ever get to the point where he's a reliable scorer and not probably a guy that's better suited at a bench volume scoring role like that? And yeah, I'm just excited to see what he's able to do. And um, hopefully the Timberwolves can finally get healthy so we can see what a uh, healthy Timberwolves roster can be uh, be capable of. Well, Anthony Edwards has been a little bit disappointing this year. I think we can all agree on that. Um, and coming out of college, I had him ranked as my number one player uh, in the 2020 draft. And that was purely based off of what I thought his potential was as a player, um, you know, being a you know 0.1% athlete, someone who is always going to have an athletic advantage against whoever's guarding him. And he obviously showed flashes at Georgia, his ability to, you know, create his own shot and to shoot at a pretty high level in certain games. But just like Georgia right now is inefficient and very inconsistent as a scorer. Uh, You know, he's shooting 30% from three. And it's not like that's a number that's been increasing as he's been playing this year. His three-point percentage has actually decreased every month since December. He shot 33% in December, uh, 30, like about 0.04% less in January, so 32.9. Then he shot just under 30% February. And so far in March, he's only taken 10 threes, but he's only made one. So he's shooting 10% in March. Uh, And that's really disappointing because – his three-point shooting ability was something that I actually expected to be something that translated to the NBA, given that in Georgia he was taking some very deep, you know, NBA uh, level threes that he was hitting. And like EJ mentioned earlier, uh, the free throw rate is also a huge problem. If you're that athletic and you're that talented at attacking the rim, there's no reason you should only be get, taking two free throws a game. Um, so those are the two things that I really have been disappointed with the most in Edwards' game. Obviously, he's shown some flashes. There's that uh, poster posterization uh, that he had uh, against Toronto, I believe. Uh, I think that was a week or two ago. And he's shown that he's he's got the ability to make some insane highlight plays. But the question is, can he put it all together and become a more consistent player in throughout his entire game? And that's the difference between whether or not he's going to be the star that I expected him to be coming out of college. Um, 
I kind of have an opposite take of the guys. I, I think I've been pretty impressed about of how Anthony Edwards has played, um, just watching him uh, play. I know obviously he hasn't been efficient, but I'm not too concerned about the efficiency aspect of his game at this point in his career because, I mean, a lot of one-and-done guys, um, they're not – their efficiency is well below average too. I mean, if you look at uh, Carmelo coming out of college, he only shot 42 from the field, shot 32 from three. If you look at Kevin Durant, who's one of the most efficient scorers of all time, only shot 43 from the field and 28 from three in his rookie year. So in terms of the efficiency, I'm not too worried about that. I'm just more about the style of play and how he's getting to where he's going. And let me preface this. I'm not expecting um, Anthony Edwards to be the stature of a Carmelo Anthony or a Kevin Durant level superstar player, but I still think he's shown the flashes and the capability of being a future all-star player down the road. And I'm really loving what I'm seeing from him. He's super athletic. Um, I love the way he attacks the rim. I think, yeah, he's not getting to the line a lot, but I think some of that has to do with him not getting the calls that he deserves at uh, some aspects of the game from what I'm seeing. And I, I really like the potential of his jump shot. I know he's not hitting it at all, but he has a really good form. He, he knows how to um, get to his spots. And I just see a lot of potential and room to grow from Anthony Edwards. So number three on the list, we have the, uh, New York's finest, Emmanuel Quickly. He's currently averaging 13 two assists and three, three assists and two rebounds per game. All right. Well, to start, I'm going to be honest. I, when they took quickly, I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't get RJ Hampton because uh, they were in the position to draft him. And although I wasn't a huge RJ Hampton fan, I figured at, at pick 20, that would, you know, have been a really solid high potential pick. He was an athletic guy and they, they ended up picking quickly who, at the time, I was, I was, you know, iffy on that pick because obviously he had been a high, very efficient shooter at college, arguably uh, one of the best shooters coming into the draft, if not the best. Uh, you know, he shot almost, I think, it, maybe even over ninety percent in college from three or from free, the free throw line, which uh, is, you know, a key indicator into how well someone's going to shoot in the NBA from all levels. But uh, I can't say that he's done anything other than utterly impress me this year. Uh, I mean, he's shooting 38% from three, playing a backup point guard role, and the Knicks are, are currently, like, the fourth seed in the East. I, I really have, like, I, I had no expectations coming into this year of him playing at, at a high level. I kind of expected him to play 10 minutes as a backup and not really do anything that impressive. But he's he's coming in off the bench and being a high-level scorer, and he's being the three-point shooter that the Knicks needed for the last two years. That, that's been their – their biggest issue is they haven't had shooting to compete with the teams in this new era of basketball where shooting is the most important part of the entire game and adding him as, you know, off the bench, 20, 20 something of pick. I think that's insane value. And I'm really hoping he can develop into a starting point guard in the future because uh, his playmaking is still uh, leaving something to be desired. I believe he's not averaging uh, an impressive number of assists. I think he's only averaging like two and a half assists per game. Uh, again, that's still in a low, amount of minutes, which with, you know, Tom Thibodeau's head coach, he's not going to play an absurd amount of minutes as a rookie. And I, you know, I have my beliefs on that personally. I think he should be playing a little bit more, but Thibodeau's going to do what he's going to do. And at the end of the day, I'm just glad to see that quickly is outperforming my expectations. 
and I really hope that, you know, he can eventually earn some time as a starter playing over Alfred Payton, who I'm not a fan of at all. And, you know, playing alongside RJ Barrett. I, I'm really excited for the future. I, I have nothing but good things to say about him. Yeah, I'm going to shut the door. Thibodeau, like, I don't know what's his deal, but, like, he's got to play quickly more, in my opinion. Like, Peyton sucks. That's just it. Like, he's not good. But, yeah, my only knocks for quickly is that he's shooting 41% around the rim, which is, I would say, all right for now because he's a skinny dude. Um, and he's more of an outside player anyway. And he's a rookie, obviously, so you've got to adjust to the physicality. So I can let that slide. And his assist rate's only 20%. It's kind of low, but he's a backup point guard. And so it's not anything to be that worried about at this time in his career. Everything else has been fantastic. Like he's shooting 38, 37, three, a decent amount of attempts, outstanding free throw shooter. So you want him in the clutch to take the free throws. And he's been, I feel like, a pretty good defender for a rookie player. So like he's far and away exceeded my expectations for him coming this year. Jim, before you uh, hop in, EJ, did you say uh, he's shooting 40% around the rim? Did yeah, you say I, you... according to StatMuse, it says he's shooting 40% around the rim. Okay, because I'm looking at the uh, field goal percentage by distance, and from zero to three feet, he's shooting 64% around the rim or around that area. Maybe StatMuse got it wrong. StatMuse, I don't know. I was looking at their shot card. I said 40%, but it's also maybe, not maybe it's the not criteria zero to three. Is It's like zero to, like I think, like 10 or eight, I think. Okay, so that okay. Could be why. No, yeah, that's probably why. Okay. Like, I'm thinking, like, close best. I'm not exactly layups and stuff. Right, right, right. That Chino Hill style of basketball is really in dividends for him. And his connection with Miles Bridges has been really nice to watch. And the defense has been about what I expected, though. He's been really active off ball when he's engaged with, like, steals and deflections. It's very impressive. Uh, LaMelo Ball, this is my number two prospect. And honestly, when he got drafted by the Hornets, I wanted to cry. I felt so bad. I was like, no, not this team out of all the teams. Cause you look at the Hornets since they've even been the Bobcats. It's like, no one wants to watch the Bobcats Hornet or Hornets play. Like they're just kind of a, you know, just a team that's like just there. This, they've been so mediocre. They've been so unexciting. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's like, I mean, obviously Kemba had a nice little run there, but for the majority of that, their time, like they're just like, a team in the NBA, but they were they were never anything meaningful. And I think this year, obviously, it's not just Lamelo. I think Rozier and Hayward are all having great seasons. Um, but I think that Lamelo's kind of like brought joy to Hornets basketball, and just like the whole entire organization has kind of been reju rejuvenized with the season that he's kind of been at the forefront of, with uh, just his tremendous play and this, his personality on and off the court, and then. I think that his shooting, um, it's it's probably surprised everyone like how far along it's come um, from what it was in the NBL where he was a pretty weak high volume shooter. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to see where his career goes. I think his defense is definitely like, no one wants to uh, really admit it, but his defense has been a pleasant surprise for the Hornets this year. Um, I think that we saw from his AAU um, circuit days, he definitely had a, a strong feel for the game that helped him on that end where he could really play the passing lane as well. And he could pick people's pocket really well. And I think those things carried over, but his um, commitment to buy-in from, from a team defense standpoint, and then also the ability to lock in when he does have to play on-ball defense has been a pretty huge plus for their team. 
Uh, and quite honestly, I think he's been the best rookie guard since Damian Lillard. I really do believe that. I believe he's probably been playing like a top 10 point guard in the NBA this season, especially um, in recent weeks, ever since he uh, got the starting nod with the injuries they had. So yeah, I think he's a future superstar and he's surpassed even my lofty expectations for him. Uh, yeah, I don't really think I have anything else to add. Jam kind of just covered everything that I was I was thinking. Um, obviously, he's very good, and yeah, Jam pretty much got it all. Yeah, I mean, the kid's box office. He's a future superstar in this league, and the future is finally starting to look good for the Charlotte Hornets. Um, speaking of rookie of the years, our next topic and our final topic for today. We'll be going into midseason awards. So everyone has their list of MVP, deep defensive player of the year, rookie of the year, coach of the year, most improved player of the year, and sixth man of the year. And we'll just be going through one by one. So to start off, I mean, we can just get the rookie out of the year out of the way. I think all of us have LaMelo. If anyone has anyone else, please go ahead. I don't think anyone does. So moving on, we can talk about uh, who do you guys think or who do you guys have as your sixth man of the year this season? I think it'll be pretty unanimous around here. I think it's Clarkson. Like, he's putting up some starter-like numbers. I don't think it's that much of a debate, honestly. But that's who I have, honestly. Yeah, Clarkson for me as well. I think, you know, uh, Last year when he got traded to the Jazz and he was kind of having a strong season, people were pretty skeptical of um, was the Jordan Clarkson experiment in Utah legit or was it just like, you know, some regular season fluke thing? He's probably going to be out of there in a year or two. And I think when they went to the play playoffs and Conley missed time um, because of the birth of his kid and then they didn't have Vogdanovich, they were really struggling on offense because they really just had Donovan Mitchell there. But I think – Clarkson's ability to step up in that moment needed him uh, the most in the playoffs in the bubble. I think that showed like kind of the true value he has to that franchise, his ability to be a, a lightning type of score from the perimeter and in their bench unit where they really need some additional scoring. And I think he's been one of the um, unsung heroes of their season. Just like, I think he's their second leading scorer and he's coming off the bench. That's huge. That's huge. Plus he's shooting career highs from the field and from the three-point line, I believe. So, yeah, I think if Clarkson's able to bring this level of production um, deep into the playoffs, then that's going to be huge for the Jazz. Yeah, um, again, pretty much covered everything. I know I know Sagar and I both also picked Clarkson, so um, we're probably going to go into the, into the next award, right? Yeah, we can uh, go ahead and go into the next award. Um, next up, we'll talk about Coach of the Year. So. I'll go ahead and start first. I had um, Quinn Snyder of the Utah Jazz as my coach of the year. Um, I just think what he's done with the Jazz this year, he's exceeded everyone's expectations. Um, when you when you think of the Utah Jazz, you don't think of a, a title contender team or a team that's amongst the best in the NBA or have the best record in the NBA because they're currently sitting at 27 and 8. Um, just night in and out, they're, they're seriously obliterating teams out of the gym. Uh, recently, yes, they have they've had a couple close games, which in, which they've lost, but um, there's overall throughout the season they've been dominating the NBA's best teams, and the main difference that Quinn Shiner and the Jazz 
as a whole have implemented is the emphasis on ball movement. Uh, I think last year we saw a lot of isolation with Donovan Mitchell or a pick and roll with Donovan and Rudy Gobert, and that was just the bulk of their offense. I think now um, Schneider has realized that he has some very capable shooters on the perimeter, and he's spaced the floor incredibly well for them and allowed them to be in positions where they can knock down threes at the highest clip in NBA history. All right, Jay, so, do you want to go? Oh, yeah. Yeah, EJ, go. So I had uh, Monty Williams of the Phoenix Suns. The Suns were a team that I know you guys really believed in coming to the year, but I definitely had uh, my doubts and concerns. You can probably talk about, you know, the CB3 effect that he's, you know, the mastermind behind their meteoric rise. But, like, I definitely think that, like, Monty would deserve some credit with how they're using eight and more in the post roles and the development of Aiden and Bridges. Their young guys have really been playing well. And you got Booker, obviously. And I think that I never could have foreseen them as um, the top, what are they, the three seed in the West right now, I think. So I think that's vastly impressive. Um, I'm pretty sure Schechter and I have the same pick, which would be Tom Thibodeau of the New York Knicks. And I think my rationale for having him above some of those other guys like Monty Williams and uh, a Quinn Snyder, for instance, would just be the fact that his ability to raise the like the play of this team cannot go like it can it cannot be understated. Um, they're currently second in defensive rating, and then when you look at their roster, it's really built up of a bunch of young, unproven guys. Like they're still trying to find their way in the league. Like yeah, Mitchell Robinson. He's had some um, success being a big time shot blocker, but he's still trying to like discover the nuances of the NBA and like how to stay out of foul trouble, how to play Cannon Allison in the pick and roll game. And then RJ Barrett, uh, he's another guy trying to live up to his draft stock or his draft, uh, yeah, his draft stock and kind of become a star in the league. And the rest of the team, you have guys like Alfred Payton, Austin Rivers, Alec Burks, um, Guys that have kind of been journeymen in the NBA. No one's well has been a big time piece um, off the bench for them as a backup center. And I just think that um, his ability to get that team, I believe they're fourth in the Eastern Conference um, in terms of standings. I think that cannot go understated when you look at the competitive landscape of the NBA, where literally every single team, whether you're 500 or a few games below 500, you're really there in the thick of things because the NBA is so talented right now. Um, yeah, obviously I picked Tom Thibodeau. I mean, this is kind of the same argument that people had for uh, in the NFL for Brian Flores to win coach of the year. Obviously he didn't end up winning. I believe it went to Kevin Stefanski of Cleveland. But when you take a team who's expected to be one of the five worst teams in the NBA, and you currently have them halfway through the season. I mean, these awards are – these are our halfway through the season awards. So theoretically, if he were to end as the fourth seed and the Knicks finish this season as the fourth seed, I don't think there's any question that he would win coach of the year. Um, I, like it's, it's, it's unbelievable given the, the, the talent disparity be, between them and like the top seeds in the, or the top three seeds in the East. I mean, look what the, look at the talent that the Bucs have, the Sixers have, the Nets have, even teams uh, like the Celtics have uh, in the heat. And then look at the Knicks. I mean, they're, they're playing with, uh, Mitchell Robinson, who's been who's injured, he has a fractured hand, um, and they're playing with a bunch of young guys and journeymen that team. And Julius Randle obviously has been the heart and soul of that team, but no one expected him to play anywhere near this well. 
I, it's unbelievable what Tom Thibodeau has done for this team. And you could look at them playing now compared to when they had uh, David Fisdale as head coach. It's night and day. And I don't think there's any question that he should win coach of the year over guys who have were playing with multiple all-stars and have exceeded expectations by a little bit. Obviously, you know, it's impressive that the Jazz are the one seed, but they've always been like, they were always in playoff contention and they've also been super healthy and super lucky. So of course they're going to end up as a top seed in the West. The Suns, CP3, Devin Booker, Aiden, you have two, if you consider Aiden all-star level talent, three all-star level players. And yeah, they're competitive in the West, but look at the Knicks. Like what, what all-star players they have? They have Julius Randle, who no one expected to be an all-star. And they have a bunch of young guys and, and uh, journeymen. So I, I think it's unbelievable what Tom Thibodeau has done with this team. And to say anyone else would be coach of the year is blasphemous to me. Don't tear up uh, much, I, I agree with you um, that it's been, it's been Tom Thibodeau has done a sensational job. I think me personally, I've had Tom Thibodeau as a top five coach for, for the longest now. Um, I think he's been very underappreciated in his tenure in the NBA. He was obviously the mastermind with the 2008 Boston Celtics the defensive coordinator of that team, as one would say. And obviously those those Celtics teams were just one of the greatest defensive teams of all time, arguably. And they won a championship that year. Then he came to Chicago, um, instantly turned them into uh, a contender in the NBA. His first year with Chicago, they were 60 and 22. Derrick Rose was the youngest MVP in the, in the league. Um, and then even after Derrick Rose got injured, they were consistently amongst the best, not just in the Eastern Conference, but throughout the entire NBA. Even with... Joakim Noah going down for 40 games in that first year. Derrick Rose missing all those games. Um, players in and out of the a lineup. Um, just things like that. Tom Thibodeau has overcome those challenges. And then coming to Minnesota, he was great with um, with the Timberwolves as well. But I just think um, in terms of this season, I, I, I think he's still doing the things that he's done in the past. I don't think it's any different now. But I just think what Quinn Schneider is doing is – historically great for a team that does not have historic talent. Um, the point differential of every game, they're blowing teams out by double digits and not just any teams. They're blowing out contenders. They're blowing out the Lakers. They're blowing out the Clippers. They're blowing out team after team after team. And it's just not even close. And that's just something you don't expect from a team led by Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. And yes, they have all the shooting, but they shouldn't be blowing teams out based on their talent. So there has to be something other than the talent on that team. And I think Quinn Snyder has implemented a new system, which has elevated their level of play. Now, will this continue in the playoffs? That's a different, that's a different conversation. But in terms of what he's doing in the regular season, I think Quinn Snyder's my coach of the year. Okay. I just want to address what Sagar had to say really quickly and then we'll move on. Um, so he's like, oh, the Jazz are blowing people out. Like, there's got to be something. I mean, I'm telling you, this is what I said earlier. The Jazz are winning because they've had the most continuity of of any team basically they've been able to stay healthy and they've been able to stay uh consistent in terms of who's playing for them so like yeah they're blowing contenders out but those contenders that they're blowing out are like the lakers without anthony davis or i mean they're playing they're they're playing teams that are not at full strength and have not been at full strength the whole year so i don't think it's a fair comparison and your Tibbs argument is is stupid. <laughs> no, no offense. The Tibbs argument is stupid because Tibbs has always had all-stars, like a bevy of all-stars on all of his teams. Uh, it, when he was in Minnesota, obviously, he didn't have Jimmy Butler for very long, but he still had Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns. And when he was on Chicago, obviously, he had Joe Keem, Luol Deng, and Derrick Rose. Even when Rose was out, he still had, you know, Luol Deng, Joe Keem, and a, a lot of solid role players on that team. This Knicks team is 
significantly less talented than any of those teams. And none of those teams were expected to be uh, like low seeds. Those teams are all expected to be playoff teams. This is easily the the worst team he's ever coached in terms of expectations. So uh, I think that Tibbs' argument, obviously, he's a great coach and it's unbelievably impressive what he's doing. And that's why he deserves coach of the year. All right, let's let's move on to the what Dan said. The, Jazz had no roster turnover, least the team least affected by COVID. Like they're just sitting pretty right now. That's why I agree with Dan. Just one bad day. Thank you, EJ. Let's uh let's move on to uh defensive player of the year. Uh, I know we are I think we're split on this. So Sagar, do you wanna do you wanna lead us off with who you think should be defensive player of the year? Yeah, I believe uh, me and JM have the same guy for Defensive Player of the Year. We both got LeBron James for uh, Defensive Player of the Year. Um, so why I have LeBron is because, well, when you look at the defensive rating in the NBA, the Lakers are still the number one uh, team in defensive rating despite them losing Anthony Davis for, I don't know, the last however many games of the season. Um, also, when you look at the on-off splits from when LeBron is on the court and off the court, their defensive rating actually takes a huge increase. So when LeBron is on the court, they have a defensive rating of 102.9. When LeBron is off the court, they have a defensive rating of 108. So yes, they're still a top tier defense, even with LeBron off the court, but with LeBron on the court, they they elevate into um, another tier outside of everyone in the NBA. I mean, if you look at uh, other defensive player of the year candidates on off numbers, we can go from, for Joel Embiid, for example, his on numbers are 106.5, off the court 108.8. Uh, ben Simmons 108, off the court 107.3. So it's actually a drop off uh, defensively for some reason. Uh, Rudy Gobert 103.8 on numbers and off the court is 110. So I think if you just look at the disparity that LeBron brings to the table is very comparable with Rudy Gobert and the fact that he has a better defensive rating than Rudy Gobert, in my opinion, elevates him to the defensive player of the year. Candace. Um, yeah, agreeing with Sager, LeBron James is my pick. And I think when you look at defensive player of the year, you kind of want to take a guy um, that's kind of like weakness deficient, like in any scenario, um, in any situation of the game, LeBron James is going to be an impactful defender. There isn't um, a switch. There isn't some type of offensive uh, variance that you can do that can exploit a weakness of his because he really hasn't had uh, many this year. And especially with Anthony Davis, who was their best defensive player last year, him not only uh, being out the past few weeks, but even when he was playing, he clearly was like lingering and uh, with whatever type of ongoing injuries he had. And he just wasn't the same type of player. So I think that put even more pressure on LeBron James' shoulders to kind of be the Draymond Green of their defense, to be the the quarterback of their defense, to be the guy that's communicating what needs to be communicating, make all the right rotations. I mean, if you just watch a Lakers game, especially when it gets down to crunch time, if LeBron's not on the ball, then he's probably making a big time rotation off the ball. That's um, kind of deterring the offense. And then I think another guy that's been in big time consideration would be uh, Rudy Gobert and I personally am fine with any one of the other contenders being crowned the defensive player of the year besides Rudy Gobert. That's because of the fact that, um, you know, I think he's a guy that kind of takes it. His stats really come a lot from playing some weaker teams that don't have as much spacing as probably some of the top teams in the West, for instance. Um, I, so I think that 
Uh, when he's playing like the Thunder or something, his value just goes through the roof. But if he's playing a team with uh, Nikola, Jok- Nikola Jokic on the court or Damian Lillard on the court, his value kind of plummets a bit. I think Jokic had a game where he gave him 49 uh, points earlier this season. And then he had another game um, where he also had 36 points and Simmons. But this is when Embiid was out. So um, the Sixers, they had – they started Mike uh, Scott at the five and Gobert had been guarding him. And obviously Simmons got off to a hot start. And then they also tried, the Jazz also tried putting Gobert on Simmons and that didn't work either. Next thing you know, Simmons is off to the races with a 42.12 assist performance. Um, Vucevic also gave Gobert uh, 34 points this season. The Pelicans have been giving um, Gobert problems defensively. I think he hasn't been any type of deterrence for Zion Williamson in the paint, which is kind of disappointing when you uh, think about the fact that Steven Adams is really parked in the uh, dunker spot for a lot of the Pelican sets. And even though Rudy Gobert is right there in position to make a play on Zion Williamson uh, getting to the hoop, he really hasn't been too much of a factor for him there. And then also uh, Joel Embiid, that's another guy. He just gave him 40 and 20 right before the All-Star break. So I think when so many guys are, having some of their best performances of the season, I can't really give it to a guy like uh, Gobert. I think we can all agree that Gobert is a tad overrated. Am I right? Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Defensively, at least. Yeah, defensively. Yeah. I think he's a little underrated offensively, but go ahead. I, I agree. He's definitely underrated offensively. as like a lot of guys. But my defensive player of the year is my guy, Miles Turner. Been a big fan of his since college. Texas boy, Bedford, Texas, 107.9 defensive rating. Um, I think his block percentage is like 9.3, which is insanely good. 3.4 blocks per game. Perfect compliment to Sabonis' lack of defense in Indiana. And they're not having the best record right now, but he's still my deep boy. Dan, would you like to go ahead? Uh, yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think Miles Turner has, I mean, obviously, like any given year, you can give it to LeBron. Um, obviously, this year he's played more uh, defensively. He's been more impressive, I think, partially because he has to be. But um, I just think that, like, purely looking at blocks per game and rebounds per game, Miles Turner has been extremely uh, efficient and effective. And it's actually pretty impressive how he's uh, – improved his like we knew coming out of college that he was going to be a, a very talented you know player and that he was going to be a contributor defensively but uh I don't really think anyone expected him to average three and a half blocks and one steal like he I mean he's leading the league of blocks and he's averaging a steal per game and obviously Indiana you know they've been uh a little bit inconsistent as a team I think they're still going to be a playoff team I think they're going to be a very good playoff team and a, a tough out when it comes to the playoffs and I, I, the the defensive rating on and off. Obviously, LeBron, I think LeBron's is a little bit better than Miles Turner's, but Miles Turner still has a pretty significant uh, impact in this team's defense. So, I, I just also don't really feel they're going to give LeBron Defensive Player of the Year this year. And if you look at all the betting odds, LeBron's not even. Um, I don't even think he's close to like the top of the list. I know like we're we're making our predictions for or our statements for right now. I just don't think LeBron is, uh, like, viewed through the public as, as you know, defensive player of the year candidate right now, where Miles Turner, I believe, is is number two behind Gobert. Yeah, definitely. LeBron's yeah. definitely not viewed as a 
candidate, but I think me and Jam both agree that he should be viewed as a candidate and even should be the favorite. Uh, speaking on just Miles Turner's on and off numbers, he's on the court, he's 107.9 defensive rating and off the court, he's 111.3. So without him, they're still a top 10 defense and with him, they're uh, top five defense. So um, also I'd like to point out that LeBron is currently number two in the league and defensive win shares at 2.3. Rudy Gobert is at number one at 2.5. I just want to say, like, it's just so hard for, like, perimeter players to, like, win defensive player of the year. Like, the voters just get so happy when they see, like, bigs getting blocks and boards and steals. Like, it's just tough for perimeter players like Ben Simmons and LeBron to, like, overcome that, I'll say, voter bias. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's – we both have our opinions, and – I think that they make a they they also make a good argument. So it's really what you want to agree with uh, in terms of what's like top and what's bottom. Uh, moving on to the to the next award, uh, I believe we all have Jeremy Grant for most improved player. Um, if anyone wants to just give a summary on like just one person because we're running a little bit low on time on why they think Jeremy Grant should be a most improved player, they can, and then we'll go into MVP and uh, wrap it up. Uh, I think it's pretty clear cut that. Jeremy Grant is the most improved player in today's NBA. He uh, went from a team where he was the probably the third, maybe the fourth option on playoff time with, with the Denver Nuggets, and he averaged, what, 12, six, and maybe two assists per game. And now he's elevated his level of play to averaging over 20 points per game. He's shooting at a high clip. Um, I, th- I believe he's shooting close to, if not 40% from deep. And his overall game has just taken another level based on the role he's played, and he's he's embraced – the role as a first option with the Detroit Pistons. Anyways, um, yeah. But, oh, just go ahead, Jam. Thoughts on that? It's just further evidence would be that the Pistons, like, alongside the Timberwolves, the like the worst teams in the NBA this year. Um, but they actually are eight points per one hundred possessions better than um, uh, uh, when they do have Grant on the court compared to when they don't have him on the court. Um, so, yeah, I think Jeremy Grant and also his ability to score from all three levels and the post-up, it's been uh, pretty not just, like, um, effective, like, in, like, uh, low volume, but also in high volume. And even with teams loading up on him as he is the number one option, um, he's still being able to maintain high efficiency. So I applaud him for that. And also his defense has been pretty good this year as well. Yeah, okay. So moving on to the final topic of today, um, the 2021 MVP. Who do you guys have as your guys' MVP this year? The man himself, Joel Embiid, 30 points per game as a big. You know, those points are uh, definitely easier to prevent than premier players, I would say. Number one seed in the East. I didn't expect from the Sixers. And just the way he's been playing, dominating people like Gobert, and showing up in big games with big numbers, I think he's should be the consensus MVP in my opinion. Um, yeah, adding on to EJ's point, I think historically when we look at MVP caliber seasons, like it's not only like the narrative of these players is like so prevalent in the media, but also just like their play it just seems like so inevitable. Like their dominance feels so inevitable. I think look back even as far as um, Derrick Rose's MVP year in 2011, um, KD's 32 point per game, 50, 40, 90 year, 
um Steph's 2015 and 2016 campaigns is just like like not only are, are they great such great players but when the game's in the balance and the team really needs them you feel like they're just some type of inevitable force that will um, put their team over the top and I think um, over the course of this year uh, that's kind of maintained with MB and just his ability to impact the game on both ends as well as be one of the big crunch time players in the league. So yeah, I definitely would give him an eye. Um, so I'm looking at it and it seems like we all have Embiid, but uh, because, you know, it, it, to make it more interesting, um, I'll make the argument for Jokic because Jokic, uh, uh, the only reason I would say he shouldn't win MVP or that he won't win MVP is because his team's record is poor and historically you have to be a top two seed to win MVP. But as a player, Jokic is putting up the most impressive numbers this year, I think. Um, he's number one in offensive win shares. He's by far number one in, in win shares in general. Like he, he's at, he has 8.3 win shares so far this year. And the next highest guy is Embiid with 5.8. So there's a clear, uh, like clear barrier between those two. I mean, he's uh, 2.5 win shares higher than Embiid, who's number two. And 2.5 is a separator between Embiid and someone probably more than like 30 or 40th place. So he, he's clearly, as an individual player, he's very impressive. His box plus minus is also uh, three, I, I guess the term would be points, three points higher than anyone else in the league, which Embiid is number two again. The offensive box plus minus is the highest. His value over replacement player is the highest in the league by 1.3, which is the differentiating number between Giannis, who's number two, and uh, Bam Adebayo, who's 15, and Trey Young, who's 15 or 14. So, I mean, he's playing uh, – the advanced stats show that Jokic is, is uh, the best player in the league so far this year, but unfortunately he's not uh, – he doesn't have the record to to win MVP. But that's – I guess that's like a an argument. If, if we didn't care about record, who should actually win MVP? I, I would say it should be Jokic. I think he's also averaging like – so like 26, eight and eight or something unbelievable. He's almost averaging a triple double. Yeah, hundred percent. Both uh, Jokic and Embiid are having historic set uh, seasons, especially for the center position. Um, Embiid is currently averaging the second most points per game by a center since the three point area. Uh, Moses Malone was at number one at 31.1. Embiid's currently averaging 29.8. Um, he's putting up numbers eerily similar to a prime Shaq. Um, just by watching him play, like I think where he's taking the biggest step in his game is that he shot, he's shooting his lowest attempts in threes, and he's converting a lot of those three point shots into more 15 to 18 foot range where he's been absolute money from that range. Um, I believe he's shooting somewhat, somewhere between 60 and 65 percent in that, in that in between area. Um, he's shooting 40 percent from three, which is probably the result of him taking less threes, but you can see that he's become somewhat of a three-level score while also being arguably the most dominant player inside next to a guy like Giannis, um, even Zion Williamson, who's shown flashes, who's shown that he's one of the most dominant as well. I just think Embiid's ability to carry this team to the number one seed and his dominance as an overall player has solidified his spot as the midseason MVP. Records aside, who is having the better season you guys think? Um, yo, I think records record aside, Jokic is having the better season. He is the leader in all the efficiency stats. He's number one in player efficiency rating as well, which I forgot to mention. 
he's averaging 27, 11, and 8.6. So, you know, if he ups his assist numbers by like less than one and a half assists, he'll be averaging a triple-double as a center. Uh, he's shooting 56% from the field, 42% from three, 88% from the line, and a 61% effective field goal percentage, all of which are unbelievably impressive for any player, let alone a center. So record aside, I would have to give it to Jokic, but it's very close. And then when you consider the fact that Embiid is the number one seed in the East, there's no question that Embiid is my midseason MVP. Unfortunately, that record has to, you know, play a big role in it because I feel bad for Jokic that the rest of his team is kind of ruining his MVP. If you can get back on track, you can definitely make a run at it, though. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's all for today. Um, anyone have any thoughts on anything? Last remaining thoughts. All right, thank you guys for listening. Uh, take care. This has been episode two of Pace and Space. Have a good one. Peace. Yeah.